please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. This is an English translation from the original Greek language. This is the very Word of God. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, as we have received your very word, your direct communication, the revealing of your own mind, we see it as a great privilege that we can have your word to guide us, to show us the way of life, to show us the true salvation that is in Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you that in this church for the last 17 years, we have been able to hear your word. Some of us hear from the beginning, some coming only recently, but this church having been established as a place where we could come and hear the very words of life, oh Lord, we thank you for this mercy to us. It is a mercy we do not deserve. We see your kindness and condescension toward us all, that you have not left yourself without witness, but that you love us enough to tell us what we need to do. Oh Lord, what must we do to be saved? That is our heart's cry, but you have shown us, even through Jesus Christ, your own dear Son, who lived and who died, even dying as an atonement for sins, sins, our sins, and sins of those of sinners like us. And having risen from the dead, he was vindicated by the resurrection. And that that gospel is what is proclaimed in this church. Oh Lord, we pray that it would continue to be so. We thank you for the fruit of the gospel, the gospel's, be, the gospel's preaching, the, the gospel being heralded, the gospel being taught in Sunday school to children, the gospel being shared between one another, the gospel being witnessed to, to non-Christians in this community and beyond, the gospel being preached not just in this church, but preached in other churches by people sent out, men sent out from this church, by church plants, even the church plant in Cochrane, a place where the gospel is being advanced this morning with Pastor Josh Carey. Lord, you have done this. It is your gospel, your good news, your good message. And we thank you for the privilege of bringing that message to us, to our hearts, that we would be delivered from the wrath to come, that we would be delivered even from eternal damnation in hell, and we can be delivered even now knowing this eternal life and to know what it is to be adopted as your own children no longer enemies, but belonging to you so that we can pray with all, with all sincerity, with all boldness, we can say, Our Father who is in heaven. Oh Lord, we thank you for these great privileges. 
We do pray that you would continue to help this church to be a gospel witness in this city. This is a dark city, a city under your judgment, a city of wickedness. And yet, Lord, we pray that we would be able to share the gospel and so snatch people, as it were, as branding irons out of the fire, Lord, to deliver them. Lord, we pray that you would save many through the witness of this church. And we do pray that the gospel would continue to sound out as it has these many years. Lord, we do pray for our leaders. We pray for Justin Trudeau and Daniel Smith and Jody Gondek, all the different people in various levels of government. Lord, we pray that there would be a great repentance among these various leaders. Oh Lord, it would glorify you so remarkably to see a mass repentance of all the various government leaders across this nation, that they would get on their knees and turn from their sins and cry out to you for mercy and for forgiveness as they repent of their sins, Lord. Forgive us for our unbelief in thinking that it's not possible. Oh Lord, we pray that there would be that repentance across this land, among leaders and among the citizens. We also pray, Lord, that these leaders would lead in accordance with your righteousness, that they would steward even this common grace that you've given them, that they would rule and govern and direct and legislate in accordance with your revealed truth, Lord. We pray that you would thwart their efforts, even advised or unadvised, their efforts to oppose your truth. And Lord, we thank you that we do have the privilege here that you've given us the mercy that we can speak so freely, even this morning in this gathering, that we have the freedom to proclaim even the Word of God and to hear it freely, to read from Bibles freely. So we thank you for these mercies that we don't deserve. Lord, we do pray that as we hear your Word, that this would not be some rote ritual, but that we would begin to see it as it really is, that in the encounter with your word, we would see it as an encounter with you, and that you would powerfully work in our lives, even as we have gathered together for the word heard together on this Lord's day. O Lord, come and meet us, and do this powerful work among us, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Of course, today is Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week. We commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on this day. And as we think about this, it's also, as you've been informed this morning, it is our anniversary Sunday as a church. And as we think about, and I've been thinking about the last 17 years with this church, starting in a living room and now here in this building, uh, having planted a church, uh, there. There is this, this amazing context in which this church has passed through. All of all this context that we have experienced. It's been a, a context where we have seen God's grace at work in this church. It's been a context in which we've seen a conflict. Spiritual warfare that this church has gone through. There's a context of the culture wars. Where we have seen, even in 17 years, the the way our society here in Canada and, and even in Calgary, the way things have changed even as people have pursued wickedness rather than righteousness. We've seen the threat of what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world, those, those wicked principles that would want to turn everybody's thoughts away from God and towards themselves, and toward the ruler of this age, even towards Satan. We've seen the necessity of a sort of antithesis, where we want to live in this striking and distinct way, set apart in our lives as being 
distinct from the world, even though we live in the world. That has been our pattern and our desire. And all of this through this animating hope in the resurrection, even the hope of eternal life that has been communicated to us, even by Jesus Christ, our own dear friend, the one who has come and died for us, the one who promises to bring us into the very empire of the Holy Spirit, to bring us into heaven, to be with our Father, the one whom we can call ours because we are his adopted children. That is then what we have had and enjoyed in this this ministry, in this church. But in the 17 years, as this anniversary indicates, we're still wrestling in these last few years, these last three years, with the tension of the claims of God and the claims of the state and how they have come into conflict in the West. How they've come, not just in the West, like Western Canada, but I'm talking about the Western civilization. And so we've had all those tensions being brought to bear in a distinct way. Not not entirely new, but in a, a distinct and intense way in the last few years. Now, since Mark chapter 3, we know that a hatred of Jesus can bring people together. And we see that even in our own day, how people, there be people from different groups, they will come together in a sort of unity because they just don't like Jesus and they don't like Christians and they don't like Christianity. It is nothing new for people to make new friends because of their shared hatred of Jesus. But you remember, after Jesus had healed the man on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, it said that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That is one of the key contexts for the Gospel of Mark and for the ministry of Jesus. So from Mark chapter 3 now to Mark chapter 12, we could say the band's back together again. The Pharisees and the Herodians. That's what's happening in in verse 13. The Pharisees and the Herodians are together. Now, what you have to realize as we begin looking at this section of Scripture in Mark chapter 12 is that the Pharisees and the Herodians, they go together like, um, like the liberals and the conservatives. Or like the fascists and the communists. Or like the Euler fans and the Flames fans. And I can think of one of the elders saying, yeah, well, what about the Canucks? The Pharisees were the anti-Roman party. They're Jews. They resisted the Roman occupation at every turn. They were against paying taxes to Caesar. They didn't want to pay Caesar. They didn't want to pay for his armies. And they were the leaders of, we could say, the pure Jews, the true patriots. That's what the Pharisees were. The Herodians, by contrast, they were the pro-Roman party. They liked Rome. They were the aristocrats. And they had been working with Rome for many, many years, going back even with Herod the Great having dealings with Rome even when there was still a lot of Greek political influence when that was dominant before the Romans came in and took over. And so these Herodians, this this Herod party, they were supported by having this money coming in from the taxes being paid to Caesar. It helped them maintain their political position. And it kept, kept Judea stable and safe for Jews to go about their business. And so the Herodians were on top of the heap. So they, they liked it. Everybody's paying taxes. It's all coming in. They're taking the gravy off the top. So they liked the tax system. So on the one hand, the Pharisees, the Pharisees worried about their position as opposition leaders. 
And on the other hand, the Herodians worried about keeping the state in power. It sounds just like politics today. It's it's just exactly the same. Now, why would these two come together? Why would these two very opposite groups come together? Well, we see it here and there. They have a common hatred for Jesus. What I said in Mark chapter 3, even starting out. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he wasn't upholding their claims for the kingdom. And, and he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted a different Messiah. And Jesus challenged that. On the other hand, the Herodians, they had gone around telling everyone that Herod was the Messiah. That he was the Messiah. Now, Herod was an Edomite. He was from a different lineage. But he would, they would quote from the promise in Genesis that the scepter wouldn't pass from Judah until Shiloh come. It was a messianic prophecy. And that's why they thought, oh, now this Edomite guy, he can be the Messiah because the scepter's passing from Judah to him. And then it's no wonder, you remember the Christmas story, it's no wonder that Herod wanted to kill all of the innocent children in Bethlehem when Jesus was born in order to kill off a rival Messiah. That's the darker Christmas story. You know, nobody really wants to talk about that. Of course, Jesus challenged Herod's claim to be a Messiah. Now, these groups are joined together, and although the parallels aren't the same, I mean, you could even imagine the extremities today of the Israeli government and the leadership of Hamas coming together in a hatred for Jesus. That's how stark the contrast is, but it also shows how intense the hatred of Jesus Christ was. So this kind of starts setting it in your mind. And then, as it says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk, it says in verse 13. Well, like far too many of our journalists today, you know how journalists are, it seems to be, their line of questioning was deceitful. It's what we would call a gotcha question. It's a trap. Their intention, their intention was not to find an answer. You know, you've had even people do that to you. You know, they ask you a question. They don't really want an answer. They just want to try to trap you. The intention is to force you into saying something that will be a, a self-inflicted wound, kind of, a, kind of an own goal on yourself. And this is now kind of the standard tactic of most reporters. Uh, I won't, you know, I mean, you've maybe seen some clips of a certain politician with a certain reporter or two and, you know, kind of getting, in. I won't comment on that, I won't go into that, but you know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. Some of you follow the politics. Some of you don't care. It's, it's fine. But it is a key tool of the cancel culture in our age is to use gotcha questions not to find answers, but to get you into having a self-inflicted wound, to actually get you to incriminate yourself. And so you can imagine then this context. Here are these, call them the conservatives and the liberals or whatever you like, they're trying to hunt down Jesus. And that really is the word, the Greek word here. It is to trap him in his talk. It's the idea of entrapping, hunting him down to entrap him in the talk to try to get a hold of him, to kill him, to destroy him. That's the idea. And so how do, how do they go about entrapping him? How, how are they going to trap him in his talk? Well, what are they going to do? They're going to build this fence around. Well, what do they do first is they flatter Jesus. They flatter him. That's the first thing they do. You know, this is how they come. Look at verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Oh, you're so awesome. You're so amazing, teacher. You're so clever and smart. 
You know, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They didn't believe that. They're just, they're flat out lying. That they're, they're, there's nothing true in what they're saying. Flat out lying. But they're flattering him. They flattered Jesus. But we know they wanted to kill him. We know this from back in chapter 11 and verse 18. They were seeking a way to destroy him. These are calculated people. They're, they're plotting and planning. Jesus had predicted this in Mark 9.31 or Mark 10.34 and elsewhere. So, so you've got this new union of Christ-haters who are trying to mask their desire to destroy Jesus. That was the context. That's, that was what was going on. And I think this is important just to note, just in just pause for a second, is, is that we all need to be aware of being flattered. There is a great temptation that you, you can be flattered and get sucked in by that. You remember Pilgrim's Progress? If you, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you know, that's, that's what you should do during this upcoming Christmas season. Read through Pilgrim's Progress. But Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, he, he warns about the flatterer. And the flatterer says all these wonderful, beautiful things in order to get then the pilgrim to be entrapped, to be ensnared in order to be destroyed. And we have to be on guard, I think, as Christians. We have to be on guard lest we be so eager to have the approval of somebody at work, or to have the approval of somebody at school, or to have the approval of somebody online, or to have the approval of whomever it is, that then we listen to the flattery of people who actually want to either exploit us or destroy us. And we, we, sometimes Christians can be kind of dumb that way, to be honest. I mean, I can be dumb that way. People say nice things, you think that they're, they're being sincere, when actually they are trying, they're trying to find a way to ruin you. So you need to be aware of this. Jesus doesn't think that you should be dumb. He, he, he's not dumb in dealing with these guys. He can see right through it. And then... You see, at this point, this union of the right and the left, if you would, this union of these guys, they laid the trap. Now, what's the trap? Well, the specific trap is this. You see it at the end of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Wow, okay. So here's the trap. Now, now, of course, the trap is this dilemma. If Jesus answers and he agrees to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to be accused of being a traitor to his own people. All the Jews would think, oh, this guy. He, he's betraying our national cause. Who is this guy? He's a traitor. On the other hand, if Jesus refuses to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to be charged with being seditious, being essentially an enemy of the state. So, so he, this is where he's at. I mean, in, in, the, in the modern political jargon, this is called a wedge issue. You hear him comment on TV, talk, this is a wedge issue. I'm going to stick a wedge. Now, it's, it, it's, it's intended to divide people, to put you on one side or another. That's what it's supposed to do. But in this case, you've got the two groups who hate Jesus so much that they don't care which side he's on. They just want to trap him on either side of the argument. Normally, those guys would be at each other's throats, but they don't care. They've got a common enemy. They want to get Jesus. And this, this, I think, as well, should remind us that just because people in society, commentators, wherever, at work or in government, just because alternatives are presented on issues and, and things are framed for us, doesn't mean 
that we have to follow that framing. doesn't mean that we have to follow the alternatives that are presented to us. As Christians who follow Christ, we have the mind of Christ. So, so we ought to know that you know, we, we can choose to follow Jesus that might not fit neatly into some other people's categories. And we also have to know that there are different groups that want to entrap Christians, that want to entrap you. They want to entrap you just like they tried to entrap Jesus. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 20, you recall, Remember the word I said to you, Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. See, that's the reason. So you think, oh, well, you know, it's because I wasn't winsome enough or something like that. Well, that may be the case. But ultimately, the hostility is against Jesus if you're a true Christian believer. That's also why then Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, I know when I get hassled by people who aren't Christians and are hassling me for the positions I take because I'm a Christian, I'm always surprised. Because I think everybody likes me. I mean, don't you think everybody likes you? You're a likable person, aren't you? You assume everybody likes you. Oh, I get along with everybody. And you're always surprised. Oh, well, why... Why, why wouldn't you like my position on, on, on sexuality? Why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't you agree with me on, on my view of that homosexual lifestyle is a sin? Why, you know, why, wouldn't you, you know, why wouldn't you agree with me that I think Jesus is the only way? I'm surprised you don't agree with me. Don't you like me? I thought you liked me. Because we just succumb to that flattery so easily. We assume everybody likes us. We're surprised. And Peter says, don't be surprised. Even as you're learning, if you're going to these Philippians Bible studies on Tuesday night, the men's and the women's studies, Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you, speaking of the Christian believer, it has been granted, that is, it's a gift, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for his sake. There's two gifts there. To believe is a gift, and also to suffer for his sake is a gift. Two gifts. And you think, oh, I don't think suffering's a gift. Actually, actually it is. If it is for Christ's sake, it is in identification with him, in union with him, because they hated Christ first. So when you suffer in identification with Christ, you're actually showing, yeah, I'm, I'm tied with him. I'm connected to him. Now, Jesus was not naive to this plot. Uh, he, he could give them an undeserved civility, but that didn't mean that he was ignorant of Satan's schemes, 2 Corinthians 2.11. He knew their hypocrisy. And that's, that's what Mark re- records, verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy. It's straight up hypocrisy. And if you're like me, the hypocrisy of our world, it's, it's so staring you in the face all the time. It's almost overwhelming. It's like, there's hypocrisy here. These people are telling me how, what I'm supposed to do. They're utter hypocrites. And then, of course, then you get influenced by the world and then you realize, oh, I'm, I can be a hypocrite too. But this hypocrisy, Jesus saw right through it. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to destroy him, and they're coming and, and saying all these sweet, sugary things to him because they wanted to trap him. So this is the thing. What does Jesus do? Well, he went right after it. He went right after that hypocrisy with all of his wisdom and all of his integrity. 
And Jesus is just brilliant. Do you realize that Jesus is brilliant? He's not just the Savior. He, he just, he's so amazing. He's so smart. He's so brilliant. Because he says, verse 15, he says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Why put me to the test? See, putting him to the test like this, to try to entrap him, they should have simply been coming and bowing down to him. Bowing down and just receiving what he says. Bowing down and heeding him. Letting him guide them. Letting him carry them along. But instead, they're going to put themselves above Jesus and act like a judge over him and put him on trial. Put him to the test. He's saying, why do you, why do you put me to the test? And then he said, Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Well, the denarius is a Roman coin, and Jesus evidently didn't have a denarius. He's not walking around with lots of spending money. But he, so he asked somebody to produce it. Okay, bring, bring a denarius. Now, that, that's going to bring us to our next point, which we're going to see his brilliant answer regarding Roman taxes. But first, we have to see what Jesus saw. Now, the denarius was a special coin, a special Roman coin. It was likely minted in Lyon, France. It was part of this special, high-quality currency that the emperor Tiberius circulated to pay his troops, to pay governors, and to pay administrators. It wasn't a cheap penny. It was this sound, solid currency that he used. It had a real high value. But more than that, the denarius, this coin, it had on one side of it an image of Tiberius himself. And, and this image is really important to note because it's got an, it's got an image and an inscription. Uh, so it's got Tiberius's face on it, and then there's this inscription or a, or a confession, really. The inscription read, Tiberius Caesar... Son of God, Augustus. So, so the coin is basically saying that the emperor was a god. And he's the son of a god. Now, that's a religious claim right there. Now, on the other side of the coin was a picture of Livia, who was Tiberius' mother. And she was depicted as the high priest or priestess of peace, of Pax. So you have on this coin, on both sides, the religious claims of Rome. And if they weren't clear before, Jesus looked at them in detail as he held up this tribute coin. He's, he's looking at them. Here's the claims of Caesar. They're right here. They're religious claims their political claims, their military claims, their social claims, all these claims are right there. And this is then verse 16. They brought one. He said to them, whose likeness, or whose image, and inscription is this. So both an image and a confession. And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, this Caesar, Tiberius, he's no saint. Uh, I mean, he's, he's a wicked, evil man. The ancient historian Suetonius said that Tiberius was a pervert, was brutal, was cruel in all of his dealings. He was a dark, very gloomy emperor. And reflecting on the way that the Caesars ruled, not just Tiberius, but all of them, there was a chieftain in Scotland who famously said, this would be about 15 years after the fall of Jerusalem, he said that the, he's speaking of the Roman Empire and its cruelty. He, he said, they plunder, they slaughter, and they steal. This they falsely call empire. They make a desert and they call it peace. So, yeah, okay. So, that's what this empire is. That's what's represented on this coin. 
So Jesus was putting his hands even on the currency of the Roman Empire, a currency we could say even is soaked in blood, so that the Jewish zealot party, they wouldn't even touch Roman coinage because it was like it's dirty money to them. And yet Jesus, you know, he, it's like he holds up, looks at it. But then Jesus said very famously, verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, we just want to look at that first part first. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, on the surface, this can look as if everyone, that Jesus kind of wants everyone to split their lives into secular and spiritual. You know, to render the secular things to Caesar and the spiritual things to God. And that's how a lot of people have taking this. The, the idea then would be to lead many people into viewing spirituality as just a private thing. It's just about what I privately believe. Many governments today, they're very happy if Christians believe whatever they want in private, so long as they give homage to Caesar in public. And is that what's going on here? Is that what is that what Jesus is doing when he says, render, render to Caesar? Essentially, Jesus, though, is saying that there are things which Christians will use in this life that are part of the circulation distributed by the state. So, currency, you know, I mean, if I asked you if you had a dollar in your pocket, probably you don't. You probably just got it on the cards, right? But if you're using the cards... Whose circulation are you using? You know, CDN. It's Canadian dollars. Alberta hasn't come out with its own currency yet. Daniel Smith might. You know, we'll see. Actually, I'll stop right there. I won't make further comment about my preferences. But anyways. How'd you get here this morning? You rode, you, rode, you came on the road. <laughs> on, the, on the city streets to get here. It's not my street. It's not my private road to get here. I didn't let you come on my private road. You came on the city streets. You parked, you know, you didn't park on the lawn. You didn't park on somebody else's lawn. Although we're almost to that point where we're going to start parking on the neighbor's lawns. But no, we park according to the parking regulations of the city of Calgary. You, you can't can't say that you're a sovereign citizen and then keep using the roads and enjoying the rule of law. You're still getting paid and you're trading goods by this easy medium exchange that bears the image of the late queen and soon is going to have the image of our current King Charles, however temporary as a king he is, but it's going to have his face on it, whether I like him or not. It's helpful to get clear about the action Jesus is calling for in this, same, in this famous line, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The word render is the Greek word apodidomi. Not that you care about the Greek word, but that's what it is. And, and it is used of giving something back, of returning it. It's returning it. That's the idea. So, so Jesus is not admitting Caesar's false claims to divinity. He's viewing the coin as something that Jesus doesn't want to hold on to. He doesn't want to hold on to this. And it's echoed later by Paul's, by Paul's words when he said in 1 Timothy 6, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, interesting, the trap language, into many shameless, senseless, and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then you know this one, 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, whose money is it? 
Well, in a sense, it's Caesar's money. He's the one that distributed it for the queens or the government of Canada's or whatever. Romans 13, verse 5 says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So does this mean then that whatever Caesar says, we just go along with it? Well, no. That is not what Mark 12 teaches. It's not what Romans 13 teaches either. Because there is a key factor that puts the taxpaying question far down the list. It's important, but it's not preeminently important. It is the question of whose image do you bear? Whose image do you bear? What inscription or confession is emblazoned on your life? That actually is the much more important question. What is written on your life? Whose image do you bear? Is it Caesar's? No. That brings us then, of course, to the second part of Jesus' phrase. The second part, sadly, is not as famous as the first. You all know, oh, render to Caesar. We're going to talk about government today. But actually, when we're thinking about render to Caesar, we get so fixated on that, of course, when I hear render to Caesar, I actually think about Westerns. Because in most Westerns, the, you know, the, the, the guy that's the highwayman, the, the robber, you know, he's, he you know, goes to the stagecoach and he's like, render to Caesar. You know, he's going give to me, give me your money, basically. That's how some governments operate, too. Um, but, you know, all, there's all these different things where, you know, they'll say something to the effect, I'll be the Caesar and you figure out how you're to do the rendering. But the most important point, actually, is not render to Caesar in verse 17. It's not render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It is, instead, as Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out, the most important word in verse 17 is the word and. And. It is not rendering to Caesar in some separate way. Lloyd-Jones said this, quote, What is the real business of the church? What is the great call to us at the present time? It is to summon men and women's attention to the only things that are absolutely essential. Shall I put it to you like this? The great task confronting the church at the moment is to shout one little word. What is it? It is the word and. And. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This is our calling, friends, Lloyd-Jones says. We are not here to discuss art or literature or politics or evolution, or any one of these questions, they have their place, a little apologetic place, but not the central place. No, no. This is where we evangelicals are to come in. This is what we are called to proclaim. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and that which the world knows nothing about, and even the church seems to be forgetting at this time. It is that which is surely at the present time more important, perhaps, than it has ever been. We are living in a materialistic age. We are living in a sophisticated age, Lloyd-Jones says. We are living in an age when men and women are experts in all of these particular matters. You and I ought to be experts on the things of which they are entirely ignorant. Our supreme calling is traditional to introduce the and, this vital addition. End of quote. The and is to say this most important consideration. 
It is what should be top of mind of every thought, every word, every deed. It is the consideration that must be added onto every transaction, every choice you make, every idea that you have. It is this and. And to God, the things that are God's. That is the preeminent focus. And to God, the things that are God's. It is not separate. This isn't the separation of church and state. It is and to God, the things that are God's. What belongs to God? Everything. Everything belongs to Him. It all belongs to Him. So, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Romans 12, 1, you know it. You are to present part of your life, a solitary, privatized part of your life. No, no. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All of it, your whole life. So any claim that may be upon us, a claim of authority, authority from parents if you're a child, a claim from employers if you're an employee, a claim from civil authorities if you're a citizen, a claim from a husband if you are a wife, or from a church if you are a member, whatever that claim, there is a higher more total claim, more preeminent claim, it is the claim of God upon your life. It is the claim of God who is the Creator. And you are the creature. He owns you. He owns you. Praise be to God. And if He owns you, He created you, and you're rebelling against Him, woe to you. Woe to you today. Why are you rebelling against Him? He gave you life. You ought not to be rebelling against Him. As Jeremiah 18.6 said, Can the potter work the clay? God, like the potter, had the vessel He was making of clay. It was spoiled in the potter's hand. He reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good as seem good to the potter to do. It's, it's, you know, it's, God's going to do with you what He wants. Because He has the right to do it. Because He's the potter and you're the clay. As Jeremiah says, the clay does not talk back to the potter. You don't, I don't like how you're doing this, God. I don't like this government you've got here, God. I don't like this spouse you got for me, God. See, you start you're pretty quick. I can go from preaching to meddling really fast. Because then, you know, it, it, this is, it's kind of just like a little index for you. What do you complain about? Just, just what, what have you complained about in the last week? Just if you listed your complaints about your life, about what's going on. And then you've got to ask yourself, at bottom... Am I complaining about the stuff, the people, or am I complaining about God? You complain about God. We have to recognize that, if we want to use kind of the big $50 term, that there is a complementarianism where there's complementarity and it's applied as a principle to all peoples in all kinds of realms of authority and submission. Submission to that authority. Authority with accountability. Submission to those authorities. All of us are rendering ourselves to God. That is what our life is. To render ourselves to God. We are to be returning ourselves to God. Apodidomy, not returning to Caesar, we are returning to God. Turning and returning to God, that is what a Christian is. And why? 
Well, it's because we belong to God, first and foremost. John Piper said this, he said, quote, What is God's? Well, the answer, everything is God's. So the point seems to be, when you realize that all of life, including all of Caesar's rights and power and possessions, belong to God, then you will be in a proper frame of mind to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. You've got to start with God. H.B. Charles, American preacher, I've got to know him a little bit, he said this, God created you. God has the right to your life. Are you giving to God what you owe Him, which is your life? You're not paying Him back, but you're just saying, take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to Thee. Here it, I'm just here it is. I'm just, I'm just giving you my life. Isn't that kind of the language we use? You're giving your life to Christ. Which I'm, here it is. It's, your, it's, it's, it's gifted to me. It's not mine, really. I had no right to it myself, but insofar as my stewardship and responsibility of this whole life is, is yours, Lord. I'm giving it back to you because it's yours. An example of this kind of devotion to God that Jesus is getting at is summed up by Peter in 1 Peter 2. He said, 1 Peter 2.18, Servants, servants, be, that's slaves. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. It's clear, you can say, this guy is unjust. You can point that out. You can say this is unjust. So it's not saying I got to act as if the unjust, wicked master is, is I got to kind of fake it and say, oh, he's actually good and gentle. No, no. You don't have to, you don't have to lie. You're saying, no, it's unjust. But then you're being subje- subject to your masters with all respect. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. In other words, It is something that is empowered by the exclusive, undeserved favor of God. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's not that you're dumb, or it's not that you're you're acting as if the unjust person is somehow being nice and it's okay for how, how they're treating you. How they're treating you is okay. No, it's not admitting that. It's not saying that this bad treatment is okay. It's not right. And we as Christians must get in a little better habit of saying with clarity what is right and what is wrong. But then how we respond to it is that we can still show respect towards unjust authorities, but we've got to be rendering ourselves to God first. We must be mindful of God and then we endure those sorrows suffering unjustly. And that text in 1 Peter chapter 2 follows after verse 13 where it says, be subject, most important phrase, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So you've got that. There is then this respect. That's why, and I trust nobody has it, but if you've got one of those bumper stickers that has the vulgarity with our Prime Minister's name on the end of it, it is a wicked thing that a Christian ought not to do. Even though I didn't vote for the man, I don't agree with most of his policies, and yet, whether in God's economy he's here because of the judgment of God upon us, whether he's... God's tool to expose us and our lack of faith and meant to crowd us to Christ. I don't know all in God's economy. 
But I do have to respect him. I don't have to worship him, though. Because, as 1 John 5.21 said as well, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And there is a great temptation, just as there was in the first century. Those Herodians, they were so pro-Roman that they would worship the Caesar. They would worship him. And there is great temptation for idolatry in the church. That we would be captivated to say, well, whatever, whatever the government says, whatever the state says, whatever society says, if society is shifting its views on the, saying that women can be pastors or shifting its views and saying, well, Christians should affirm same-sex marriage, well, well, well we, you know, we, we want to go along with that because we want to be winsome to, to society. And, the, and all of a sudden, we're letting in idols into the church. No, that's not the case either. We want to render ourselves to God, the things that are God's. How does then this apply to us? Because they should be able to get everybody at least a little bit upset with me um, when we're on these topics. But we talk about Caesar and the church. We have to recognize Caesar's limits. You know, and, and we've seen that. We've seen the limits. Even as we pray for our leaders, we pray for governor, gov- people in government. But I think we always have to have in mind, even as we are respecting these authorities, you, you, didn't drive, you didn't drive in the left lane to get here, right? You still drove in the right, on the right side of the road, hopefully. I mean, if you're driving in the left side, you're driving too fast. You know, you're going around everybody. But we, we still respect the laws. We still respect things. We model that. But we also, at every point, we also need to speak out and call the government, the state, Caesar, call them to account. Because each decision, each word spoken by the state is accountable to God. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you one day, or tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every care... You think about that one. Every careless word. Think about me, but think about the government. Think about society. Every, every careless word. Nobody is getting away with anything. And they think they are. The Christian can speak according to God's word and say, no, you're not, you're not getting away with that. You might seem like you are now. You are not getting away with that. It is wrong. It is not true. And if you speak, if government or anybody speaks truth, then that will be vindicated. But if they are speaking false, every, every careless word will, be, will have to be given account for. Now, I'm just going to frame, and I don't know if, You'll agree with me on this. But I'm just going to frame what has happened in the last few years as we're thinking about moving forward. And as 17 years as a church, we're moving forward. And I believe that fearing God was expressed in two different ways, even during the pandemic. And, and I would say that we saw people, as I've looked back on it, We've seen people fearing God in two ways. One was fearing God by a very watchful compliance to what the state was asking in a unique situation. And then fearing God by a very reflective resistance to what the government was asking, particularly the churches, to do. I'd say that I see there's fearing God in both cases. Many churches and Christians who complied with what the government asked in that unique situation, they did so out of fear of God in all of the subsidiary spheres of authority and submission. That's what they were doing. There were also many churches and Christians who resisted the regulations out of fear of God, seeing the overreach of the government as out of its appropriate sphere of authority and submission. Once you get out of those spheres of authority and submission, you get out of the proper realm, it's, it's not legitimate anymore. So in my view, 
both of these kinds of churches and Christians felt tension. They felt tension. I'm going to call it the fear of the Lord tension. The FLT. They had that FLT, that fear of the Lord tension. Tension in compliance, tension in resistance. I note that this was actually brought out in this documentary, The Essential Church, and it was the tension of, for example, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church, the tension they felt in wrestling through the compliance with certain regulations. And in the end, they decided to resist those regulations. I also note this, this fear of the Lord tension with some of the churches connected, for example, with Gospel Coalition Canada, some of those churches that complied with regulations to some extent, but it was out of the fear of the Lord, not because they thought it was all good and true. So these churches with fear of the Lord tension, the FLT, were more alike, I would say. I've, that's my conclusion. They are more alike than the churches that were either zealously doing Caesar's job for him in compliance, in an idolatrous way, or those who were casting off all authority with no fear of God in their eyes. And that's how they acted. And so then they can never tell anybody to submit to any authority ever. It's like, you can't tell me what to do, right? It's that kid's response. You ain't the boss of me, right? And that's, that's that. Those, those are the two distinct ones. Whereas the ones with the fear of the Lord tension, even as they differed and had different applications, they actually were more unified in, in a response. But what are we to do now? And that's what you want to know before... We close. There is Caesar at work and there is the church. What we're finding is the current modern state is very religious. They say they're secular, but they're very religious. And so there is, if it's religious, because they want total control of your, not just your public expression, but what you think and what you feel and what you approve of. So it's a new religion. So that means there's a threat of idolatry, friends. There's a threat of idolatry to idolize what Caesar is asking of us and demanding of us. If it's imposing on our worship in private and in public, telling us what we should be devoted to. Well, if that's the case, we have to be nonconformists. We have to explore the possibility of submitting to magistrates to resist the tyranny of other magistrates. There's still taxation. Taxation preserves social order. We continue to benefit from charitable stack, tax status even in this church. You know, I think some of you are waiting. You're, you'd only be giving money if you could get the tax receipt, I wonder, sometimes. If we didn't have the charitable tax receipt, would you give it any money? Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe you would. Maybe you'd be very generous. If you are, that's great. Um, it doesn't exist in China. There is no charitable receipts in China. There is no nonprofits. Jesus' approval of paying taxes to Rome was revolutionary. That's what Mark Dever said. Mark Dever said this, By this Jesus shows us that the legitimacy of a government is not determined by whether it supports the worship of the one true God or even allows for it. By Jesus not requiring those who follow him only to support states which are formally allied to the true God, as Old Testament Israel had done, Jesus unhitches his followers from any particular nation. It's a remarkable thing. We don't have to be Israelis to worship the true God. Do you realize that? You don't have to travel to Israel. You don't have to take out Israeli citizenship to be a worshiper of the true God. We've all voted with our feet. Some of you are brand new here. We voted with our feet to stay in this tax jurisdiction in Calgary, where there's too much tax in this town, in this province, there's still in this country. But we're here at Calvary Grace. This is where we are. But we are seeing in this church, we're seeing a new nation being brought together. A new nation, a new nation described as singing to Jesus in Revelation 5-9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain 
And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is the marvel of the gospel. So my question then to you this, as I close is, are you fearing God in all your relationships? Are you fearing God? Are you fearing God? It is God. Not the cleverness of our arguments that we must focus on. It is God whom we must return ourselves to. I'm all into the politics. I'm into the Christian nationalism discussion. I'm knee-deep in it. But you know what? That's really not where the action's at. The action is at returning to God. Returning to God. You and me. Are we, are we godly people? We're not as godly as probably we ought to be by any measure. And then if we return ourselves to God, then taxes or honor to lesser beings will be inconsequential to us. All the schemes of man, they just won't matter as much. They'll matter little to us because we're just sojourners and pilgrims because we are taken up with the things of God and we're fascinated with God and we don't need pleasures for ourselves We are concerned with the pleasures of God and God dominates our thoughts and we give Him our attention and we give Him our devotion. And it's tangible and it's real as we look to Him. And so the question is, will you return to God today? Will you give yourself back to Him because God is entitled to you? Look to Him today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we know that you claim every square inch of our lives. Oh Lord, forgive us for partitioning off parts of our life that we want to keep for ourselves or that we want to render to Caesar or render to the world or render to someone else when we have not first given it to you. Forgive us of this, Lord. Oh Lord, grant us repentance Grant us a turning and a returning back to you. Then all the other things will pale by comparison as we see you high and lifted up and exalted. Give us that renewed vision as we turn to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing to the high God, to the one who should give who, to whom you should give all your attention. Please stand. It's a reminder of the newcomer's lunch after the service. If you're new or if you just got questions about this Christ and you don't know him, then please come talk to me. Come downstairs and talk with us. My benediction to give to you is, is from 1 Peter chapter 5. And you might be just asking, like, how long do we got to do this? And the answer is a little while. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Go in peace.